For years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery knowledge and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB revealed a whole new platform with all new features for craft lovers to plan their unique brewery experience. Find, filter, search, and route your way to breweries worldwide and in your own neighborhood. To take full advantage of the optimized power of BreweryDB and to increase your brew knowledge, visit BreweryDB.com, your digital destination for brewery experiences. Good Beer Matters shares the stories of craft and culture found in every glass, and I'm excited to announce that the Good Beer Matters podcast and BreweryDB are collaborating this year to help you get to the bottom of it. Visit us at BreweryDB.com and GoodBeerMatters.net to finally have the experience you've been missing. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. You've got to think from the consumer point of view, they don't think, oh, it's diacetyl, therefore it's bad. They think, oh, it's uh, caramel and kind of, it makes it taste sweeter. If your staff are trained, they're going to be able to pick out when something goes wrong. They might suggest ways you can improve the product. Yeah, I really think it should be at the forefront of people's business, to be honest. Learning to evaluate our beer like a professional goes way beyond whether we simply like it or not. Our senses of taste and smell and a growing vocabulary will help us detect flavors that don't belong in our glass. My next guest is an industry leader who teaches us how to detect and decode the off flavors of beer like a pro. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe, and one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 77 of Good Beer Matters with Kara Simpson of Aroxa. guest on the Good Beer Matters podcast is an industry leader in in, in all things sensory uh, to kind of continue on with the series on sensory. Um, but anyone who has trained as a BJCP judge or uh, has worked toward higher levels in Cicerone, uh, you've absolutely heard the name of this company. And uh, we're going to dive into it a little bit deeper today. Uh, this company is Aroxa and my next guest is Kara Simpson from, from the UK. Kara, thank you so much for being here on the Good Beer Matters podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you today. Um, well, of course, uh, it is my morning, your afternoon, so um, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure you're hopefully rushing out to uh, uh, hopefully a good happy hour somewhere. Um, yeah, well, the pub's just open here this week, so <laughs> hoping to try and fit in a, a quick beer after if I can. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, just a quick aside, um, uh, I've, I've loosely, uh, meaning minimally, uh, been following the state of the pubs in the UK, and, and there was just an absolute yeah. total shutdown for a very long time. Is that correct? Yeah, is they only opened up again on Monday, but we can still only have beer outside rather than inside. Um, so in typical British fashion, it started snowing on Monday when we had 
about that, say, 80, 90 Fahrenheit the week before. So it was nice and warm and then started snowing on Monday when they opened. But I don't think that stopped people going to the pub, to be honest. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't suspect it did. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a different conversation we could get into. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering yeah. <laughs> from a, at least a quick response standpoint, but how did that impact the, the, the pub and the brewery industry in the UK? Just, I mean, of course, we're talking about the uh, pandemic. For anyone yeah. who listens to this five, ten years in the future, we're talking about the uh, COVID <laughs> pandemic. Um, yeah. But how, how much did that impact your industry there in, in England? Yeah, massively, to be honest. I think it was a such a big shift for people in the beginning, the same in, as in the US of having to switch to small pack in order to stay alive, pretty much. But I think that the other thing over here is we're in our third wave. So we've had three lockdowns and they've all kind of, let's say, come out the blue, been a bit disorganized. So I think it's thrown a bit of a spanner in the works for, for breweries who, let's say, might have been planning for a busy Christmas period. Um who had brewed beer. Um, as you know, it doesn't take two seconds to brew a batch of beer. So it kind of has been a massive disruption to people's planning, I think, as well, and having to, to dump a lot of beer over here, um, which I think has just been a bit of chaos, to be honest. And they also uh, rescinded this thing called the Small Brewers Relief, where small breweries um, used to get essentially tax relief in the UK. And unfortunately, they took that away just before the pandemic. So I really don't think that's helped the craft industry here, to be honest. So, yeah, they've had a pretty tough time, I think, um, particularly the pubs as well. But hopefully they'll get a bit of a bounce back in the summer when people can drink <laughs> and go to them again, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yes, fingers crossed. Raising pints, anything we can do, at least on this side of the of the Atlantic, to, to help or support. Yeah. But, um but uh, yeah, I'm wishing the best for you guys. Uh, but uh, <laughs> let's let's dive into this interview. Um, I want to know a little bit more about you, your uh, personal background, yeah. especially in beer and sensory. But of course, I'm coming at this from a beer point of view. But but you know, your company covers beer, water, cider, and really many many things just besides beer. Um, but tell yeah. us a little bit more about you. Yeah, I'm trying to think what there is to know about me. Um, so I kind of ended up in the beer industry by accident, you could say. Uh, I did politics at university. So like lots of other people in the beer industry, I came from a completely different background. Um, didn't set out thinking, oh, I want to talk to people about beer and sensory. Um, but obviously, the, the clue might be in the name. So the head title of our company is uh, Cara Technology Limited. Uh, it was started by my dad over 25 years ago now. When I finished university, uh, I wanted to go into marketing or PR or something like that. And my dad essentially said, uh, we're looking to hire a marketing person. Uh, why don't you jump on board for six months and learn some skills and then go off and do something else and kind of let's say over six years later i'm still here <laughs> and uh my my role's trained quite a lot since then um i started in marketing for the company but really kind of in technical sales learn all my skills on the job and over the years i've been here uh mostly from chatting to people and learning from people in the industry um but yeah kind of fell into it by accident and uh, i think i realized i love the beer bit and the traveling so that's probably why i stayed so definitely a good decision but yeah that's a bit how how i got into the industry um as i said not really intentionally but i think a lot of people are like that as well in the industry to be honest um and yeah i, th I don't think there's much else to add 
but that's that's a bit about me. Uh, living in Surrey near our office. Um, I got a dog during the pandemic, like m- many other people. So that was a, a silver lining. <laughs> well, some people just but, learn yeah. to bake bread, but uh, I guess others yeah, got puppies. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, most importantly, this may sound like a, a a bad question, but are you a beer drinker? Yeah. I am a beer drinker. I actually, uh, the last couple months, stopped drinking for about uh, six weeks or so. Uh, I managed to drink lots of good non-alcoholic beer, but it was definitely good to have my first, let's say, proper beer a couple of weeks ago again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I've known a few people that have uh, had a, uh, have gone dark, so to speak. Um, yeah. And come out the <laughs> other side uh, still intact. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, obviously, uh, of course, uh, my parents own their own business. Um, my, my father was always an entrepreneur. And, and uh, you know, there's always talk that, that I would join the family business. But originally, yeah. it was, it was a, a, a retail store, which I, I did a little bit, and that just wasn't for me. And then, and then later on, it was real estate, and I tried, and it just wasn't for me. It, it it's too bad that my father didn't get into the beer industry. That would have been just really great for yeah. me. So uh, kudos to you. But um, but but so your father started this company. I think you said twenty five years ago. Yeah. How did how did the what's the origin story of Aroxa? So my dad started the company 25 years, well, just over 25 years ago, as I said. We had our 25th uh, anniversary last year during COVID in August. So we had a Zoom party. So Uh I think we were hoping to have a bit more of a a bigger party, but when we can, we will. Um, But yeah, my my dad's background is he used to work for, uh, this is Dr. Bill Simpson, for anyone that might know him. Um, He used to work for a brewing company a brewing company called Tenants uh, in Scotland. Uh, he was there for seven, eight years. And then he went on to work for a company called the Brewing Research Foundation. Um, it's where a lot of, let's say, the the big people in the industry uh, kind of came from. Um, so my dad's boss was Charlie Bamforth, uh, worked with him for years. Mm. Um, and while my dad was there, he came up with lots of different inventions. The, the whole point of that... Uh, let's say foundation was just to do brewing research in the industry and then they'd essentially give it away to large multinationals they wouldn't sell any of it um and basically my dad was trying to stabilize hop compounds uh was kind of how we uh invented is the first kind of flavor standard that we had uh the only reason he said he wanted to do that is he wanted to call it cyclops for some reason um so he made the first one realized no one had done it before and then someone kind of said to him have you thought about training people with these um and it kind of went from there and he, he started by first approaching the multinationals and saying like back in the day that were probably InBev and Anheuser-Busch and everything like that before they were all one company. Um, and basically set, tried to sell the idea. And because he was giving it away for free, basically no one would take it. So he decided to go out on his own and start a company with it because he thought that people would eventually buy it. And hey, we're still here, still here now. So clearly it was a good idea. <laughs> um 
but yeah, before that, yeah, he's got a couple other patents. So um, he's the inventor of uh, the technology around ATP testing and stuff as well. Uh, I said to him, that's probably the company he should have started because that got sold to 3M for something like 300 million years oh, later. Wow. That we'd be sitting on, we'd be sitting on the family yacht right now <laughs> if he'd done that one. Oh, yeah, but, yeah that, that's pretty much the origin um, and kind of started from there. So, yeah, we've been going uh, quite a while. Uh, and as you said, we work in lots of different industries. So we started in beer, predominantly in the lager industry. Um, and we've really diversified since then. I'd say probably beer is probably just over 50 percent of what we do now. It's not the, the full thing. Um, it's lots of different sectors like water, soft drinks, food, pet food, um, that's personal hygiene, uh, loads of different stuff. So, yeah, we've really kind of diversified from where we've started. But a lot of these flavor compounds, you find them in so many different things so they're all kind of related to be honest well let, let's clarify uh something i mean yeah we're, we're we're talking around the subject but what exactly do you guys do so we manufacture and sell stabilized flavor compounds essentially what they are is they are individual flavor compounds that you find in food and beverages so let's take beer so one example would be diacetyl, 2,3-butanedione, and then they're used to train assessors to recognize that flavor. Uh, the reason why you want to train your panel is either to recognize positive flavors or defects, so off flavors, uh, which would then, it's all part of quality control um, and prevent you from kind of sending out faulty product. Um, so that's the main chunk of what we do. And then kind of around that, we do training. We used to do a lot of training pre-COVID. <laughs> we have done some online stuff, but obviously uh, both myself and my dad used to travel about 36 weeks of the year. So that's kind of gone from 36 weeks to zero <laughs> in, in the past year or so during COVID. Um, so yeah, we do training. We have a sensory software we have a validation scheme, which is essentially a proficiency scheme that checks how good your tasters are. So it's sending out blind packs to breweries to basically assess their performance, um, as well as a load of other stuff that I'd probably put in the, let's say, stuff category. Of if a brewery is having a problem, let's say a technical issue, um, they might call in their regional office and the regional office can't fix it. They call in their head office, they can't fix it. Um, and then they kind of go, okay, what do you do now? And then they usually call us in. So we've been behind uh, a lot of fix fixing people's problems over the years as well. Um, but we say like our number one thing as well is we are, we're very good at keeping secrets. So we've done a lot of work with a lot of breweries that people don't know about as well. And <laughs> um, obviously I'm not going to say now, but it's funny because when one buys another, or they start collaborating, then they realize how much work we've done with both companies and then kind of find that out later down the line. <laughs> Everyone brings baggage to the relationship, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and so I have uh, uh, been a recipient of using some of these um, uh, different little flavor spikes through BJCP training and, and other type of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, uh, well, actually, first of all, so do you serve the entire world with with these products and these services? 
Yeah, we do. So we we used to say we work in 170 countries, but it's probably more than that now. I'd say it's probably closer to 190. Um, a big reason for that is because we've diversified a lot in the soft drinks and water area, where a lot of those uh, bottlers are in, let's say, the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia and Libya, that are obviously dry countries. So it's not really been ones we operated in before. Um, but yeah, we are everywhere we are global so yeah we work with lots of different countries uh talking to people in lots of different languages and kind of all over the place so yeah it's, it's interesting to see people's different cultures and talk to people all over the world so then are obviously you're working with very very large companies in in a yeah a, in a wide array of, of different things not just beer but um but i think you also said you're also working with small breweries as well correct yeah, we are. We're working with, let's say, your your big guys right down to your tiny guys where they've got three people as well. So I think if, if someone's listening and thinking, oh, I'm not a big brewery, then don't worry. I, I always encourage uh, customers, particularly craft breweries with sensory of start early. Because if you are looking to grow and get bigger, then kind of implementing a sensory program and a quality program a lot later down the line becomes really difficult. Um, both around the, let's say, the time aspect, but also the, let's say, the culture aspect. If those people have always worked for you and then you suddenly tell them that quality is important, it kind of comes out the blue for them and they almost don't pay as much attention uh, were you to introduce it to them in the first place. To kind of kind of set the expectation or set the standard that this is, this is how we do it rather than, yeah. you know, 10, 20, 30 yeah, years exactly. down the line I mean, saying... What, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one, one good example with that is I remember we started doing training and working really closely with BrewDog when they had six people. Um, and they're kind of, they're a lot bigger right now, <laughs> um, yes. valued at what, near, near half a billion. So yes. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've definitely grown since then. But I think an important thing for these companies are the ones that, to be honest, my point of view, the ones that implement a good quality system and a good sensory system early on is going to probably take you further because it's going to mean that the quality of your beer is better, but it's also consistent. And and I love the aspect, too, that where you, you train panels, you train people to uh, be aware of uh, or who can detect um, faults in a beer before they go out the door, before they go into the market, um, which yeah. just kind of, of course, you've done sales and marketing, but that that just leads down this cascading uh, event of uh, of uh, public perception of, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm a firm believer, and tell me if you feel otherwise, but I'm a firm believer that a lot of people, a lot of consumers, uh, albeit untrained uh, from this standpoint, they know a good beer from a bad beer. They may not know why, but they can they can taste a beer and just say, nah, I'm, I'm just not feeling it. Um, they don't have oh, to. Oh, yeah, they definitely. Don't, they don't have to know that it's riddled with chlorophenols because of some problem yeah. with the water program. It, it's They just have to know that I don't like it. I'm going to find something else. Uh, do you feel the same way about this? Yeah, I do. It's it's really funny you say that though, because I would say it's more more compound dependent in a sense. But I'd say definitely the the public are really sensitive, and I think people who are who think that customers aren't going to spot it and that you're let's say get away with it, um, you won't. People they might not let's say enter in a complaint to your company or your complaints department, but 
it, they just won't buy another pint if they don't like it, if they don't think it's good enough. Like they'll order one and go, well, that was pretty meh and not order another one. So that is a, that's effectively the customer's point of view from quality control. But there's certain things that I think will, will put a customer off compared to, let's say, a beer panel reviewing it. And that's more those chlorophenol notes, as you said, uh, metallic, basically stuff that you don't find in in food and beverage that is really going to put them off. Um, stuff like diacetyl, in a sense, some people love it and consumers particularly love it. We're taught in the beer industry that it's a really bad thing, um, but consumers are big fans of it, to be honest. And I think <laughs> my point of view, there's, there's sometimes too much type control over it in some breweries that i've been to but i guess it just depends how much how you want your product to taste to be honest and frankly i'm one of those people that enjoys just a touch of diacetyl uh, style dependent yeah. um if it's a, a british mild um you know having a little note in there is kind of charming um i i had a yeah. i had a pilsner urkel last night and 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 there was just a touch of it in there and it was just like that is yeah. That is kind of part of that beer, uh, for better or for oh, worse. Oh, yeah, it's, it has to have that, or it's not Pilsner Curl. It's definitely part of that beer. And you've got to think from the consumer point of view, they don't think, oh, it's diacetyl, therefore it's bad. They think, oh, it's uh, caramel and kind of it makes it taste sweeter. And diacetyl influences our perception of body as well. Like it can make the body feel fuller. So to some people, they might think that tastes a bit better. Um, so for the consumer, they might pre prefer it, to be honest. So, yeah, I think that you've got to take some perception from the consumer as well and what they think of the beer. Um, I know there's some breweries that do some kind of they get consumers to taste their beer and get them to kind of describe it. Um, that information is always valid and you can include that into that, say, your product development or general sensory as well. Uh, getting other people, the more people taste your beer, the better, to be honest. Uh, yeah, agreed. Um, so, uh, who? So, all of these, uh, this training and these compounds that you create. Uh, obviously, your your goal is to help uh, breweries, large and small, uh, do a better job. But who is uh, who are these compounds for? I mean, who who is the who is the user of these of these uh, flavor spike kits that you guys create? I've got a question for you. How are you engaging with your customers? Are you adding value or just vying for attention? If you have a business, then you are an authority and should be regarded as a partner in everyone's mutual success. But getting that message across in the first place, that's the trick. At Mountain Sea Media, I use education and storytelling to keep your brand on top of mind. So if you're done with ineffective marketing and want to create more impact, I want Mountain Sea Media to be your resource for high-value branded content. Contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com to explore the possibilities. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. I would say kind of everyone, in terms of the beer chain, it's kind of all over. We have uh, bars use them. We have distributors use them. Uh, we have, let's say, your beer panel within your brewery. So that may include uh, your brewers, your, let's say, lab people. It could include people from other parts of the brewery. Uh, we always encourage breweries to basically use the people you've got. 
some of the best haters I've met have been like, let's say, like Linda in accounting that works <laughs> in the office there, because um, she's got the free time to taste as well. Whereas your your seller person might not be available all the time to bring them off to panel. So yeah, I'd say we don't have a set single person who who uses them. Uh, you might be familiar. We we do the flavors for the the Cicerone packs and the Cicerone tests. So mm-hmm. I know a lot of people might use them for for exams as well. Uh, we also get home brewers. So really, anyone who wants to know more about flavor and train themselves in in detecting flavors is really our kind of t- key person, to be honest. And and of course, I've I've been aware of you guys for uh, a number of years now. Um, but it uh, it kind of um, I was reminded. Uh, let's let's put it that way. I was reminded <laughs> of of what you guys are doing in a um, uh, recent uh, interview. Um, uh, we were talking about, uh, oh, um, going after like, uh, advanced Cicerone or master Cicerone. And when you get to the higher levels, particularly master Cicerone, where you have to, yeah. you have to know your, your off flavors, you have to, you have to nail your flavor evaluation. And so a lot of people yeah. will take, um, take your class, which is which is not inexpensive. It's, um, but tell me, tell me about, well, th- this is going to be a two-part question. The first part of this is, how do you become a professional taster? How, how, how does someone go about that process? I guess it depends on, on what you call a, a professional taster, doesn't it? I mean, if you want to be a, a taster in, in your own, let's say you work for a brewery, let's take that approach first. If you're not tasting right now, the main take-home, I'd say, is whoever's your sensory manager, quality manager, whether it's the brewer who's in charge of your quality program, they're always keen for people to taste beer um, and come in and taste on their panel. I don't think I've met a brewery yet where they kind of dismiss people and say, oh, no, you can't taste. So if you work in the tap room, I'd say reach out to the people in your brewery if you want to taste or you work in some other area and you haven't been given the opportunity yet. Then, then talk to them. But yeah, I guess how you become a professional taster is really being trained on these compounds and these attributes um, and being able to identify them. Whether it's being trained by someone else or whether you're training yourself how to do it, which might be by essentially using the flavors and training them in beer, but you can keep your training going of even if you've done it once or twice of just taking the time to evaluate some beer either at pub at the pub and annoying your friends or at home and kind of thinking, right, what compounds are in here? Um, I, I guess, it, yeah, it depends what you mean by by professional tasters, to be honest. There's lots of different ways that you can approach it, but I guess training is the key thing, getting to that stage and being able to recognize flavors. Well, and this will be the great segue to the other part of that question is, is you know, and I've worked for a few different breweries, uh, one of which took a very aggressive approach to training staff um, and, and others yeah. is either a passive approach to training or, or they're, they're open to training if someone's open to learning. And, and, and you know, it's it just there's, there's a huge uh, a variety of, of, yeah. of, of how much education is valued in different places. What is your, um, uh, thoughts on, on a, a well-educated staff and continued, uh, education from the standpoint? Yeah, I really think it should be at the forefront of people's business, to be honest. I mean, I guess I'm biased because I work in 
quality and training and education, really. Um, but unfortunately, like when times are tough, that seems to be the area that gets, let's say, cut instantaneously. Um, when really, I think it should be the opposite. That's the bit that you keep going because if your staff are trained, they're going to be able to pick out when something goes wrong. They might suggest ways you can improve the product. Um, it might not. Be, it might be that the beer just doesn't taste quite right, or you're looking for a, like say a certain level of one of the hot compounds that really gives it its character. That it's not quite there enough. Maybe they can point that out to you. So yeah, I think it's really important to have your staff both trained, but also kind of engaged because it becomes part of the culture and they become keen and enthusiastic about what you're doing and. Let's say you're in the tap room, they can describe to the customers how the beer tastes. Uh, they're not going to say it's got this level of diastole, but they can say it in their own words and kind of layman's terms, can't they? Of, oh, it's got a nice caramel note if it's a, a British mild that the, the brewery makes. Um, and the same with the distributor end. They've, that's one area, particularly in the US, but they, I think they've really got to know their stuff because if someone comes back to them and says there's a problem, They've got to have complete oversight of kind of, let's say, whether the fault is from storage issues with the distributor or whether it's coming from the brewery. Um, and knowing those compounds and where they come from and their origins will help them do that. And I think a good start is just to recognize that there is a problem. I'm not sure what it is yeah. or where it comes from, but there's a problem. Let's go talk to the brewmaster or or the or the sensory panel um, directors, whoever it is. Right? Yeah. I think yeah. We need exactly. To start and I think if, if if you've got the right stops in place, then hopefully that beer should never get out the door. But it happens sometimes, and sometimes it's depending on let's say demand or what you've got going on you've got to be realistic. You've, you're probably really releasing a batch you're not 100% happy with. Um, we usually tell people to rate their beer out of 10 when you're doing a quality assessment. They'll say you might be sending one that gets a, a 5.8 or something out of 10. It's not a 10 out of 10, but you know you need to meet demand. Um, but I think it's making sure what is a kind of if it's on the line of whether you send it out or not, what, what kind of ensures that it gets rejected and what kind of ensures that it's fine to go, basically. And as I said, that's really kind of compound dependent of if you've got a big metallic taste um, or chlorophenol, it's kind of a, a big no-no in my eyes, to be honest. So that should be stopped immediately. Yeah. Because you're not going to get away with it. And 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 of course, nothing is as simple as black and white, especially in the beer world. But uh, generally speaking, yeah. I, I I kind of default to the uh, hell yeah uh, scale. If it's not a hell yeah, then <laughs> yeah. it should be a hell no. Um, yeah. Uh, but well, but, that would be great if every if everything that people sent out they were so happy with that was a nine or ten. I just think in the, in the realistic eyes of what people have to do on the day to day of you're not going to make beer perfect beer every time. You might have like a stuck mash or someone's added the yeast at the wrong point or it's not quite fermented right. There could be, you know what it's like in a brewery. Sure, <laughs> it, sure. no, no day is simple that you might have an issue. You'll do your best to make it hundred percent perfect. But I think it's, it's at least identifying those and then thinking, right, how can we improve it for the next batch of what were the main flavor characteristics in this and how can I improve it next time? And that goes for the home brewers as well. Like try and evaluate your beer and document it and then think, 
right, for my recipe, what could I tweak slightly to improve it next time? If you want a more kind of fruity, estery character or you want the malt to shine out more, um, then it's just taking the time to evaluate your beer and, the, and learn from it, I think, um, to either make it more consistent or tweak the recipe for the next time. But this kind of begs. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off script a little bit, especially because uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, beer, you know, sales, you know, marketing. So there's there, you know, a lot of small brewers can't afford to dump batches of beer, at least not very yeah. often. And so there is there is the pressure of, wow, this is not a hell yeah beer, but we need to get this out because we need some income, especially this past year. And so I I understand yeah. those pressures, but let, let let's talk a little bit about the the pros and cons or the risks and rewards of putting out a beer that isn't quite right your your panel has has done their aroxa training and they are spot on point and they tasted this beer and they think it's not a hell yeah it's not even a yeah it's a eh, but we have to get this out so we can make some money what is your what are your thoughts on why they should or why they shouldn't uh put that beer out into the market or in the pub. So I get I guess on the beer itself, it, it kind of depends what is the problem with it. I know quite a few breweries who have done very uh, sneaky tricks in the sense of it, it's got contaminated with brett or it's got some wild yeast in there and then suddenly you could you just need to take a step back and then you release it as you've made a wild IPA yes. <laughs> and you just release it as, as a one-time thing marketing and now to the you, rescue. you don't have to dump it. Yeah, yeah mar- exactly. I've seen that again. we've done quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, so that's the kind of thing. If it tastes all right, but it tastes a bit funky, maybe you can stick a different label on it for that main batch and you don't have to dump it. Yeah. Um, if, it's the, if it's a compound that, as I said, it is really going to be put off by customers that say like metallic, chlorophenol, it's, I don't know, really sour or lactic. It's just got beer spoilage in it. I'd really say don't put it out because your your reputation will be hit from it. I think particularly the small craft guys, yeah, you might have a loyal, your, even your loyal customers, they're going to recognize the difference. But think of someone where they're trying your beer for the first time. They walk into a, a craft beer bar. Uh, they order your pint. It's spoiled. They're, they might not ever buy from you again, let alone buy that beer again from you they're not going to have a good experience. So I think it is up for those up, up to those breweries to determine whether they would be happy with someone drinking their beer for the first time. I don't think about your your customers who are having it every day and might be like, oh, it tastes a bit different. Think about someone where that's the first time they're ever going to try Jeremy's IPA. Are they going to have be happy with it? And are they going to go, oh, no, that brew's rubbish. I'm never having anything from them again. Yeah. So I that that would be the pros and cons for me of depends what it is and I think they need to set their own criteria of as I said what makes it uh, if it's not a hell yes then what what is the no and what makes it a no and as you said no one really wants to dump it but there are other ways around it I mean a lot of the big breweries do blending. Um, obviously, it's not done as much in the craft industry, but it could be done. Uh, you could blend some into barrels if it has got a slightly funky character and mix it with other stuff. There are things you can do with it rather than just pouring it all down the drain. So I guess it just depends what what you've ended up making, to be honest. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. And and I've yeah. known uh, many of those breweries who have those, those happy mistakes. Um, 
uh, where the uh, beer. I know some uh, that have won competitions with it. <laughs> really? Yeah, and and there was one. Yeah. Um, uh, so I now live in Arizona, but when I lived in Oregon, there was a big brewery there that um, had a batch that just spoiled, and they said, well, let's turn this into an experiment, and barrel-aged it, and then it turned out pretty good, and uh, and they sold that as a, a special one-time only, uh, at you know, a kind of expensive bottle. So it was it was a, a, yeah, really, a really interesting mistake. But um, so uh, if I can switch gears a little bit, I want to get into a little bit, yeah. um, a little bit more of the scientific method of what you guys do. And um, help me understand, there's a lot of, um, you know, in layman's terms, we can talk about a butter and banana and, um, and even, even like uh, caddy is one of those flavors. But when we start talking about compounds like diacetyl and isoamyl mm-hmm. acetate and, all, and all, these, all these things that have more numbers than letters in, in their name, um, how <laughs> are these flavor standards created? How are they uh, isolated and, and put into a, a little uh, spike pill? Yeah, so kind of in a, a really quick overview of the process, obviously, is we we source the chemical ourselves. So that could be like from someone like Sigma or a Flavor House or alternative chemical supplier. We'll buy that in. So let's take isoamyl acetate as an example, the banana character. We'll take it, we'll purify it so that there's nothing else uh, in that standard. Um, We'll run it through our our, our gas chromatograph. It has an olfactory port, which is essentially a sniffing port. And what you should smell is only the banana. Uh, Basically, you should smell nothing, and then there's one little peak of banana and nothing else. If it's got something else in it, then it's contaminated. Um, It essentially goes through a a drying process um, with some compounds that could take a couple months' time. Um, And it's essentially we put it around cyclodextrins. Uh, Essentially, all you need to think of that is that essentially stabilizes and encapsulates the molecule. So let's say you take the flavor compound isoamacetate. It's like sticking the compound inside a donut hole. And then sticking it inside that donut hole means that it can't escape um, until you add it to what you're using it for. So we'll then mix it with uh, an excipient. So we typically use sugar. Um, Obviously, the amount of sugar that you have, you can't taste it in the beer when you add it. It then comes in the the small little capsules. Um, They're all color-coded depending on what flavor it is. You then open up the capsule, add it to a liter of beer that you're training in, for example. And as soon as you add it to the product, it then releases it from that donut hole, essentially, and releases the flavor. Um, And then you can train people on it. Uh, You could then use the technical term isoamastate, or you could use banana. But the key thing for our standards, I guess, compared to people who, let's say, might go out and buy the pure chemical or use an alternative uh, supplier is our our standards are 100% pure. Um, they're also stable, so they'll last between 12 and 18 months, sometimes a lot longer. My dad has some diastole standards from 15, 20 years ago that are still fine, um, that haven't degraded that much. So it really depends on the compound. Um, some will be less stable, like H2S. Uh, we have we can only typically put 12 month shelf life on it, and that's just the the stability of it. Why the uh, 100% uh, purity is important is because lots of people um, 
will have anosmia to certain compounds. What that is, is it's essentially smell blindness. It's a bit like being colorblind. Um, that if it's not pure, you might be detecting the, the other flavor that's in there rather than the flavor someone's trying to train you on. Um, if that's the case, you'll just end up confusing it with that when that's not actually what they want you to learn. So you want to make sure it's the, the right thing there. Uh, I'd say nearly everyone I've trained and met has anosmias. I know I do. <laughs> uh, they're genetic. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, there's no kind of genetic modification at the moment for, for smell blindness. So you have to just live with it. And maybe someday you'll be able to smell it, but probably not. And and so in, in, in all reality, there, you know, people know that there are, like homemade spike kits, for example, and, and in the case of banana, yeah. I've I've heard of people getting um, uh, uh, like a banana extract or taking a bunch of banana runts candy and putting it in your beer just yeah. to get that. Um, and so what you're talking about is is you're not getting the if you were to do it the the shortcut way, the cheap way, then yeah. then you you know you're it's worth every penny. It's you're not getting the the correct compound because there's multiple compounds in there it's not the same experience uh and is that what you're speaking to with getting just doing it right the first time yeah pretty much it's a bit like if you buy something that's on the market it's going to be a mixture of stuff so uh rather than just isoam acetate you'll have a whole host of compounds in there i think the other important thing is all the flavor standards that we make are at targeted levels so every single capsule is three times the threshold that that you can detect it in that beverage. Um, so basically what that means is it's a level that you would typically find in beer. So I guess the other thing as well is using standards like that, they usually blow your head off strong, which is not good for training a panel. It's a bit like teaching someone to swim with armbands at the shallow end. Like uh -huh. They're never going to be able to detect it in, in real life. Um, and pick it up when it occurs in real life. You want to be able to detect them at kind of lower thresholds. And then the better they get with training, then the lower you go with thresholds of you make it harder for them to find it. But for the assessor, it shouldn't feel more difficult. Um, we've had that from people in our training where we start them on two capsules a liter and then we go down to about half or a quarter of a capsule by the end of the week. And they feel like it's about the same, and they can't believe that we've reduced it by like a sixth. Oh wow! Um, so it, sh it shouldn't feel more difficult if you're doing the right training approach, but it's making sure people can detect it at a level that you would find in beer. Otherwise, if they're training at such a high level, they're never going to find it in when it occurs in real life. To be honest, um, as well as the anosmia issue. Like I have, I have lots of colleagues who are blind to diastole. To be honest, but if they bought let's say stock 2,2-butane dione or let's say like a butter essence or something like that, they might think, oh, I can smell diacetyl um, and be able to detect it when really they can't, which could cause a whole host of issues in terms of your quality control because what they're smelling and identifying as diacetyl might not be diacetyl. And, and it really goes back to if you're learning to taste and smell with some level of accuracy because you want to be a professional, if you want to be better educated, if wh whatever your motivation is, if you want to do this, yeah. then, then why do it the the circuitous way that may not get you to your, your target goal? If you're going to do it, just do it right. 
Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I think some people say that it's the cheaper way of doing it. But I think when you add up all these things over time, the cost difference isn't that much, to be honest, and you're not learning the right way. Um, and I think it beca- like anything, if you, let's say, don't learn the right way, it becomes a bit more difficult to reverse it. Should you ch- then choose to kind of learn sensory properly down the line we've seen that before in a way where people have kind of been taught the wrong compound or they've identified the compound as something else um, and then you kind of have to knock it out of them and go no it's not that and teach it out of them which becomes more difficult later on so i'd say yeah if you're looking to kind of learn how to identify flavor and do sensory around a beverage is using flavor standards that are are pure and is the chemical and uh, one key thing for us is we always like to use the chemical that is found in that food or beverage so if you say you have a cheesy flavor it's making sure we give you the right cheesy flavor so we give you isovaleric we don't give you the cheesy flavor that occurs in something else for example. Okay. So it, it's making sure we you use the one that's right for your beverage um, or food or whatever you're making and learning to, to identify it and kind of the, the key one that's going to come up, to be honest. So th- this is really interesting. I, I hadn't really thought through this before, but this makes absolute yeah. sense. And it kind of goes, there's an adage I learned a long time ago is do it right or do it twice. And who really wants to yeah. do it twice? Um, so... Uh, great. I'm. I, I want to find out though. So we're talking about um, teaching people how to um, uh, train them and test them um, on on these flavor standards. But will you uh, walk us through the process uh, fairly quickly? But I mean, what what does it what does it look like to have a group of of judges or tasters or whatever? What are they doing in this class or this test when they when they go through this um, uh, tasting experience? What does that look like? Yeah, sure. So for us, we kind of have uh, several different formats. It kind of depends how you're learning. Um, a shorter course, um, we might only do five sessions in the day. Um, a longer course will, will involve more tests, but also different types of tests. But a key way that we train people is with something called a recognition test. We'll usually present to them eight samples or 10. Um, and essentially, each one is a different flavor. You have a reference on the left, so you're comparing with your reference beer that you're training in um, and learning each one. We then test them at the end of that kind of session, um, mix up all the samples, and then they get feedback on it. Then we'll do another two sessions following that, say, for example. um, And we usually in the second session, we'll have 50% of the same flavors from the first one, and we'll have 50% new flavors. So we found a really key thing in, in training people is repeatability, um, usually because it's more familiarity with the sample. Uh, you might find something about it that's slightly different of maybe with a ethyl butyrate, maybe we were saying mango in the first one and then you go, oh, it smells like tin pineapple that my grandma used to buy. Yeah. Um, and you recognize it as that from now on. So the more you can kind of put the sample in front of someone, the the more chances they have to identify it. Then kind of on a longer course, we we put in the difficult flavor. 
So two common ones are butyric and isovaleric. Butyric smells like a baby vomit <laughs> to yeah. most people. Um, and isovaleric is a cheesy or stinky feet. Um, so people commonly mix those up in blind tests, but also in kind of normal assessment. We wouldn't put them in the, the same session in the, in the first one of the day, for example, because that would be way too difficult. But we might do it later down the line. And then it's teaching you to pick out the differences between them side by side so that you wouldn't do that in a, a real sensory session. So that's the main way that we teach people. We have other tests that we do, such as a, a stop-go that we call. That's essentially uh, an, an, an in-out test. It's, is the, we give the example of the beer is getting released for packaging. You're the last one on late shift. You're on your own, and you've got to determine whether this goes to package or not. And you say, go if it's fine. And if it's a stop, you say stop. And then you have to list what the non-conformances are, so what the problems are. Um, another quick test that we do is called a true-false test. So it might have a statement saying, this sample uh, tastes sour. And then you kind of have to say true or false. Uh, those ones really play with your mind because you have to think about it and you can kind of trick yourself into thinking it does. So yeah. usually when we put that in front of people, they hate that test. And <laughs> is, if you've never done it before, it's usually pretty hard. The main thing we say to people on it is do not overthink it. Just think what is the first thing that came to your mind and your gut is usually right. It's when you see people on their, on their notes where they've marked it out and scribbled all over it and you're like, oh, you've just overthought this completely, mate. <laughs> um, then kind of in our, our longer courses, we'll do more quality assessment. So that's kind of more real life of um let's say rating uh the beer so we might do a quality rating one or we'll do a list that's called check all that apply uh cata for short well they'll be given a list of all the flavors that they were trained in then they're given the sample blind and they have to tick what flavors they find or they have to tick the five non-conformances with it, for example. So, yeah, there's lots of different tests that we do, but identification is, is the main one on how we train people. Um, and as I said earlier, over a period of time, we'll, we'll train them in lower thresholds um, and detecting it, uh, let's say, at a lower level, but they're still able to pick it up. So that's kind of the, that's the main way that, that we would train train a group, to be honest. And we find that's the fastest approach. I know some breweries that do it over weeks and months, and they may do one Friday a month. But we think our approach of essentially just doing it as a crash course is the best way to get people to learn quickly. Yeah, and and I've done that uh, the first one you described the recognition a number of times. But sadly, this past year, um, I, I feel like my palate has gotten quite sloppy uh, because we haven't really been uh, assertively tasting. I think we've been more consuming. Um, and I say yeah. we, meaning me. But, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, yeah, we're definitely need to get back on just tasting and evaluating and, and sharpening our senses again. Um, speaking, yeah. of, speaking of which, uh, assuming we successfully come out of uh, pandemic mode, um, how how does one find your classes, whether whether in person or online? 
Yeah, so we usually put them on our website, aroxa.com. Um, and also we do most of the training we do is in-house training for breweries. Uh, so if people are interested, then they can email sales at aroxa.com and I can talk to them if they wanted to do that. We're hoping to do a lot more online training in the coming year. From my perspective, I don't think that's something that's going to go away once the pandemic is over. I think people are kind of used to online training now um, and spend a lot of time at their computers. So I think there's still aspects where people could do some sort of online training around the sensory field. Um, but we're hopefully looking to launch something around that later in the year. Um, and how I envision it, to be honest, is if you're a brewery and you have to bring on, on new staff, but you want to train them to sit on the panel, sometimes it's a pain because then you'd have to train your whole panel again when you just want to train one member of staff. So that's where I think that an online training format might fit in, that you essentially send them on like a one day training course that's online and they kind of just get on with it, basically. Yeah. And then they're the same standard as the staff that you've got there right now. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of as we come out of the pandemic, uh, what that looks like, because a lot of breweries haven't been able to do any training at all uh, in the past year. Um, so I think a lot of them are, are looking back to how they might do some kind of refresher training for their panel, as you say, and make sure that their skills are kind of on point um, and able to detect those things. And as far as for those people who would like to do it in person, do do they have to fly to uh, England or do you have people to uh, or do you have classes around the world, U.S. and wherever else to, to be able to handle that? Yeah, we're all over. As I said, usually it's myself, my dad and other colleagues that we're flying all over a lot of the time and going into breweries. So uh, usually we're never in the UK. I think this is the most amount of time I've spent here in, in the last year than it has been in years, to be honest. Um, we typically host to what we call open courses a year. Uh, what those are is you can send one person from your, your brewery or whoever you work for. Maybe you're just an individual. Let's say we've had people studying for the advanced or master at Cicerone, like you mentioned, um, who'll come along, along to our week-long course. Um, one of those is always at the Cicerone offices in Chicago. Um, the other one, we rotate around different breweries. So we've had it at uh, Firestone Walker, Ballast Point, um, loads of different breweries. We try and pick like a nice big one that's a customer where people would like to go to for a week, to be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um so, so, yeah, we try and rotate that every year so that it's all over the U.S. Um, but as I said, usually we'll come to you. Um, so it, it's not really like people have to fly to the U.K. It's usually we're flying to you. <laughs> gotcha. Especially if it's the uh, in California near the beach, right? Oh, yeah. They're always the most popular ones, I think, because people just, well, people people love it and then go, oh, how much for an Airbnb? Exactly. <laughs> and then panic about how much it is to say. Um, uh, to kind of start to begin a wind down process, just to be careful, or be sensitive yeah. of time and everything. Um, what do you wish more people knew about sensory? Oh, that's a tricky question. I've got, um, I've got a few tricky questions for you. Yeah. I guess that it's not inaccessible, to be honest, um, and not out of your reach. Uh, I think you don't have to be in technical brewing and be a head brewer and done a 
an IBD qualification or a, a Cicerone qualification or whatever to know about sensory and want to start to learn about it. Uh, if you enjoy tasting things or let's say cooking food, uh, you might find this really interesting. We have our own uh, external panel in our company. And, and most of those, when we do our projects, for example, when they do beer, most of them are, and I don't mean this as an insult to them, are 50, 60-year-old women who enjoy gardening and a glass of Chardonnay on the weekend. They couldn't tell you an IPA from a stout, but they're trained on the flavor compound, and that's what they enjoy identifying. So I think it's, yeah, there's no barriers to sensory, or at least I think there shouldn't be. Um, I know that that does happen in some companies or people think it needs to be the people in the lab or it needs to be your head brewer. Um, I would encourage people to think it doesn't. Involve as many people from your company as you can. If they've got the time to taste and join in, then I think let it be accessible and let them try and use their skills because they could be a great taster. You don't know that. Yeah, and, and you alluded to, uh, I forget uh, uh, who uh, you called her, but uh, let's say uh, Edna from <laughs> HR, she may have the most sensitive palate out of everyone. So so it's kind of nice yeah, to open exactly. it up to anyone. Yeah, um, exactly. We usually say if you've got 100 odd people on the site, like try and get everyone involved at the beginning because one of your best tasters might be someone you don't know and they've got all the time in the world to dedicate to you rather than your brewing staff who are usually busy as hell anyway of trying to get them away from the, the middle of a fermentation, for example. So mm -hmm. I think it's trying to involve as many people in your company as you can. Yeah, especially the brewing team may bring a bias to it anyway. Oh, oh definitely. And I've seen that so much. Of They know that something happened with uh, FV3, so they know that there's going to be a problem with this batch. And I guess an another thing with that is making sure, we always say make sure your assessors know nothing. So put in random decoy samples, put in a competitor product, um, mix samples together, mix half your IPA and half your lager or something and see if they can spot these things. You want them to know absolutely nothing and not be not know, oh, these are the three that are going to packaging this week. Therefore, we're tasting these three. Mm -hmm. They should have loads of samples in front of them and not be able to pick that out. Yeah, uh, excellent. And that's not that's not just spiking. As I said, yeah, you could use spikes. You could spike one with diacetyl or something like that. But there's so many different things you could do. Use your closest competitor, as I said, or blend different products together or add some water in some so it's not quite right. There's loads of different things you can do. That way you're you're testing your testers. Yeah, you're you're making sure it's that, that you're validating them basically and making sure that they can uh point out those samples and say this isn't good enough yeah um if you could be the queen of the beer sensory world for a day what's the first thing you would change cool. um oh, this might get me in trouble saying this but <laughs> maybe uh old school brewer mentality that it should be the the head brewer that tastes the beer um and that no one else tastes and it's their approval that kind of makes sure the beer is right it's just such a bad way to do things to be honest and that person could be blind to diacetyl they could just not be able to taste at all they might make great beer but they might not be able to taste that 
it's just not a way to do you wouldn't do that for anything else of just get one guy's opinion on something so i don't see why people do it for their beer quality but that would be the main thing i'd change probably yeah i i, I suppose kissing the ring doesn't work well in the brewing industry so why would we do the the next best thing if well but, it, but it's still done and then people almost get offended and i've seen it happen on panels of people even the people where they do have other people say it. it's overruled because the the head brewer who's been there for decades says so. <laughs> um, even though that's like, what's the, what's the point in having the panel when you're then basically just taking that one person's point of view after that? So, yeah, I'd say let's do away with that and go for the democratic opinion. Hear you, hear you. Um, if, yeah, if you exactly. could, if you could choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart the earth, what would they be? I don't know if my my beer and my food go together though. Maybe I have to have them separately. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't matter. So, you can do whatever you want. That's true. Okay, so my very last food would probably be a curry. I love curry, and it's a very British thing to love curry. So for me, it would probably be some sort of curry and nice and spicy with like all the sides would probably be my thing. Then uh, beer, it would probably be uh, Delirium Tremens. Um, I love that beer. Uh, and kind of, I don't think I've ever had a bad one. Um, so yeah, a nice kind of Belgian knock your head off triple would do it for me, I think. You're kind of going big. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, curry is the most popular type of food in England, correct? Yeah, it's the yeah the chicken tikka masala is our national dish, <laughs> which, <laughs> which kind of says which, it all. Which go figure, <laughs> there yeah the, yeah exactly. yeah there, that's a different conversation about the the cuisine of the UK and 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 how that came about. But yeah. we'll, we'll we'll talk about that next time. Um, uh, the yeah. the next the next big question um, from all of your experiences, uh, why does good beer matter? Uh, so that I can drink it all. <laughs> um, I, I guess to, to make people happy, I think, if people have got good beer in front of them, it's, it, it puts a smile on their face, doesn't it? So I guess the better that you can make beer, then it's going to make people happy. So if you're improving your quality and staying on top of your, your sensory standards, then you'll make better beer. Perfect. Perfect. Um, simple questions. Uh, anyone listening, if they want to uh, connect with uh, Roxa, you or a class or, or some uh, explore some education, uh, where do they go? So they can contact us at sales at aroxa.com or we're on social media at aroxafs on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, they can just drop us a line and we'll get back to them and help them out. Uh, we always say to people, if you've got any kind of buzzing question, uh, just drop us an email. It might be the origin of a certain flavor. Uh, drop us an email and we'll do our best to try and help you. We we don't say, oh, we charge you for the information. We try to promote education and transfer of knowledge as much as possible. So, yeah, any burning questions, then just drop it my way and we'll get back to them. Wonderful. And uh, lastly, do you have any calls to action or any words of wisdom for our listeners? I guess, yeah, just try and uh, keep trying to encourage others to, to promote quality and 
if I think when people have done a, a bad job of maybe pointing them in the right direction of what, what the faults are, but also a good job of telling people, hey, this beer tastes great and I, I'd buy it again, of trying to communicate as much as we can about sensory and flavor and trying to promote it in the industry would be great. Perfect. Cara, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast and sharing about the story about Aroxa and tasting and, and everything else. I, I, I think this is extremely valuable. Um, I, I hope more people reach out and sign up for your classes. Uh, I'm certainly, um, as I begin prepping for the tasting portion of advance, I'm, I'm starting to think in those terms as well. So, um, but so, so th- thank you for all the work that you do and for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great talking to you. We all know how to evaluate what we taste. We've been doing it our entire lives. I believe the difference between the average taster and the pro is a matter of mindfulness and training to be more specific in our evaluation of beer. Thank you to Kara and Aroxa for helping us learn how to become professional tasters. In the next episode, we face the shocking reality of mental, emotional, and physical violence in the beer industry with an expert who will show us how to deal with it. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.